Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to History Hack. I have been allowed to take control. I'm at the wheel. It's Merrin here. I'm all on my own, but I'm not alone because I've got with me Dr. Carolyn Harris. Hi, Carolyn. How are you doing? Hello, I'm good. How are you? Um, Okay. Now, for people who don't know who you are and what you do, Dr. Carolyn Harris is a historian, an author, and her latest book, Raising Royalty, 1000 Years of Royal Parenting, is quite a read. And what we're going to talk to you today about, Carolyn, is not so much the modern monarchy, but what we'd like to tell our listeners about is the monarchy that has infused a hundred films and podcasts and videos, Mm -hmm. all kinds of streams of media that we're looking at all the time. Where do we get these references from? How do we know what to look for? I mean, you are the go-to person, really, aren't you? Come on. Oh, I thank you. That's very kind. <laughs> you really, you really are. So, so tell us when we think about historical references and historical films. Let, let's let's talk about the 18th century in particular. Mm-hmm. We, when we refer to um, historical accuracy on film, love it or loathe it, how do you feel about inter- film interpretations of royal life in general? Well, often historical fiction tells us more about the concerns of our own time than the concerns of the times being depicted. Often we will see in historical fiction characters reacting strongly um, to the events that are most important to audiences and readers today, Uh, whereas in their own time, sometimes other events seemed more significant at the time and then turned out not to be. So, for example, in Downton Abbey, for example, you see Lord Grantham receives the news Archduke Franz Ferdinand's been shot and he's immediately concerned about the outbreak of war. We know that's coming, but for people at the time, there was about a five week gap and it, and it wasn't immediately clear what might happen. There had been other outbreaks of violence in the Balkans and there were other headlines that summer that, that dominated uh, people's consciousness until the war itself broke out. But for us, the Archduke is shot. This means World War One. It's very difficult in historical fiction to avoid foreshadowing what we know is going to happen. Whereas the people living through these events, there were all sorts of different possible outcomes and they didn't know where they were going to end up. But we do as an, as an audience, and it can be a challenge for historical fiction to stay in the moment and not foreshadow where we're going. And, and obviously for dramatization purposes as well, I mean, Lord Grantham would have been far more interested in perhaps the- perhaps the estate than he would have been in in Transfernan 
you know, to be <laughs> Yes, we always see in historical fiction, everyone reading the newspapers and being very aware of what is happening at, at, at any given time so that that information uh, can be provided to the reader. And of course, in historical fiction as well, even historical fiction that dramatizes the real lives of real historical mm-hmm. figures, it is the needs of the drama that take precedence. So what, what we have is a whole bunch of characters might be combined into a single character, especially when we're looking at royal courts, lots of different courtiers might be combined into one. And that's often one of the inaccuracies that's noticed if something is filmed at Versailles or at the court of Catherine the Great, that that there would be many more courtiers there, but of course we're focusing on a small group so that the audience doesn't become confused. So just how complex historical figures' lives are, the number of people they interact with, all of that becomes condensed to focus on a single theme and a small group of people, which is often at odds with just how big and complicated royal courts could be in the 18th century and beyond. So that's really interesting because this idea of narrowing down, niching down so yeah. for, the, for the screen is exactly what makes it so interesting because when they're creating these um, the films or television series, that's actually what they're, they're trying to do is to give mm-hmm. that condensed version so that mm-hmm. we sensibly understand what was going on. I mean, here in Britain, you're in Toronto at the moment, but here in Britain, yeah. the, the, the three, I guess, three or four standout classics at the moment are Bridgerton, if I dare mention the name, um, The Crown, obviously, mm-hmm. um, Abbey, as you've mentioned, perhaps not for, for, for monarchic purposes, but certainly in terms of historic drama. And then we go back to Victoria, and we've mm-hmm. got a couple of Victoria um, series and films. When we, when we think about standout screen moments that, that you've come across, if we go back further, which ones have made the biggest impression on you as a royal historian? Which films? Well, I think in the 1970s, there were some miniseries that were able to go into more depth, thinking Fall of Eagles, uh, the series about the fall of the uh, the Russian and the German and the Austrian royal houses, Edward the King, about Edward VII, uh, where we're seeing uh, Annette Crosby playing Queen Victoria for when she was 20 to when she was 80. And some of these multi-episode series we're able to get some more depth. We're able to have a greater range of political figures being introduced. Whereas sometimes film adaptations where we only have a couple of hours to go through years of history, often it's a bit more narrowed. So I found it very interesting, as I say, in the 1970s series is such as Fall of Eagles or um, or Edward the King ended up going into uh, more depth. Of course, there is still an interpretive angle. And Edward the King is very sympathetic to Edward the Seventh, and it is debatable whether or not he merited that very uh, sympathetic treatment yeah. that he receives in the series. But because there are so many different episodes, you have the opportunity to look at different aspects of his life, his marriage, his charitable interests, his friends, it it broadens the canvas. Okay, and if if we go back to, let's say, I don't know, Catherine the Great, Marie Antoinette, are there any standout examples of of those great ladies on film? Well, 
Well, Marie Antoinette and Catherine the Great have have both become pop culture icons in their own right. And often the film versions are more well known than the events of their actual lives. And there are certain myths and received wisdom that have been passed on uh, because of this. Uh, Marie Antoinette, there have been a number of famous films. Of course, there was the 21st century film with Kirsten Dunst that was directed by Sofia Coppola and filmed in Versailles. And it was in inspired by Antonia Fraser's book, Marie Antoinette, The Journey, and it included pop culture elements and gave a sense of her as a pop culture icon and tried to push back against some of the myths. We see Marie Antoinette saying, I never said that about let them eat cake. And we get a sense of her having trouble adjusting to the very complicated uh, court etiquette at Versailles. Interestingly, that film ends with the French Revolution. We go as far as October 1789 when the royal family's removed from Versailles, but we don't see uh, what happens afterwards, the trial of Marie Antoinette, her execution by guillotine. An earlier film in the 1930s with Norma Shearer as Marie Antoinette um, goes all the way um, to um, her execution. This is one of the most expensive films of its time. It had uh, Tyrone Power as Axel von Fersen, that Swedish diplomat who's been romantically linked uh, to Marie Antoinette. So that film tends to focus on events that involve both Marie Antoinette and Axel Ferris. So the French Revolution goes by very quickly, but the flight to Varennes, where Marie Antoinette, Louis XVI, and their children tried to flee France, and Axel Ferris was involved in that. We get much more detail about that event because it has them both on screen. And and that film was inspired by Stephen Zweig's uh, book, uh, Marie Antoinette, Portrait of an Average Woman. Uh, that was a book that tried to strip away a lot of the mythology about Marie Antoinette, the victim, Marie Antoinette, the villain, and instead try to look at her as a person. Of course, considering when that book came out, there were ideas of women at that time and, and what they wanted and needed that are rather um, outdated now. But the, but the book, the Norma Shearer film was based on, was one of those first efforts to portray Marie Antoinette as a person rather than as an icon. Uh, there have been French films as well, La Révolution Française and um, Farewell My Queen and, and other efforts to portray different aspects of Marie Antoinette's life. Farewell My Queen gets into her friendships like Madame de Polignac, uh, La Révolution Française uh, uh, discusses uh, uh, her the events of the French Revolution and we see her in the midst of that and looking rather sleepy at the meeting of the Estée Générale. So as you were saying, historical figures not always being entirely engaged with the very key um, I- events of the time. So she's been portrayed in all sorts of different ways in English and French. Uh, Catherine the Great has also been portrayed in numerous ways. Uh, recently, there's there's a very historically inaccurate series, The Great, that admits to being only very loosely based on true events that uh, that that plays up some of the absurdities in Catherine the Great's life and the and the difficulties in her marriage, to to yeah. say the least. But there have been previous film adaptations. There was one with Catherine Zeta Jones that focused more on the Catherine the Great's uh, uh, love life as well as her rise to power. And there was a very um, a good film, Young Catherine, with uh, Julie Ormond and Vanessa Redgrave as the Empress Elizabeth, um, the uh, the aunt of Catherine the Great's husband, uh, uh, Peter the Third, uh, that looks at 
at um, Catherine's youth in more detail, her reading Enlightenment works, her making connections at court, uh, befriending various ambassadors, and shows her marriage in a more complicated way. Rather than Peter III just being portrayed as a straight-up buffoon, we see them meeting as teenagers. At first, it seems this might go all right. He's a bit immature, but otherwise this might work. But then he develops smallpox. She recoils from him. He recoils from her. And, mm-hmm. and, and things fall apart. So, uh, so young Catherine with Julie Ormond, you get more nuance and you, and more of the complicated court politics and some of those enlightenment themes, um, of the time period. So both Marie Antoinette and Catherine the Great, people tend to think of those iconic films that portray them when, of course, there are real and complicated stories behind these portrayals. So so there's something that you touched on two or three times there in the mix. And that's the idea that we've got we've got historiography. We, we, we've got um, the recorded annals of the past mm-hmm. to refer for fact and for, you know, it, it's a good framework against which mm-hmm. to do the story. And then we've got absolute fiction. Yes. Deploying their imagination, using yeah. artifacts, by which I mean Versailles is an artifact by which I mean the, the, the clothes they wore, we do mm. still have some of those and the, and the way they lived. And when we take what we know to be true, when we take fiction and we end up with a script, we, we are always playing, aren't we, to one, what the producers, what the director can get funded, two, what the audience actually wants for the time, but also that there, there always has to be a little bit of a, well, let's, let's weave some integrity in here. So if, if we move away from the artefact, if we move away from the archives and we come down to the story itself, two things. How much of the scandal is usually portrayed accurately, do you think? And how much of the decadence do we take for granted? Or, or are people actually getting it right now when they're, when they're portraying historical fiction on screen? Well, I think, if anything, sometimes the, the, the decadence isn't portrayed um, to the degree that existed. As I mentioned before, often we have fewer courtiers being portrayed in a, a historical film when there were more courtiers. Mm-hmm. And it, it can be sometimes difficult in a film to show how some of these uh, royal personages uh, never really had the experience of being by themselves at any time. Queen Elizabeth I, for instance, she had ladies-in-waiting who slept in her bedroom, and it would have been considered unusual or unnerving if you were a a monarch and you were alone, you know, like both for security reasons and for status reasons, you would never want that to happen. But in order to advance the plot of a film, of course, you need to have secret conversations happening and sneaking around. So sometimes um, Victoria as well wasn't allowed to walk down the stairs on her own for a long time, was she? Oh, yes. Her childhood, her mother, the Duchess of Kent, was very protective of Queen Victoria and was concerned about her facing plots from extended members of the House of Hanover who might have their own designs on the throne. The Duchess of Kent was encouraged in these these concerns by her financial advisor, John Conroy. And so Victoria as a child had to sleep in her mother's room and was walked up and down the stairs. So at 18, she becomes queen. And the first thing Queen Victoria asks for is an hour by herself as she'd never had the opportunity to experience 
experience that. And we're seeing by the 19th century, the private sphere is more important, whereas our um, early modern uh, monarchs, some of those Tudor monarchs would have been used to living their whole lives in public. So that is, so it can be a challenge when you're building the plot of a film, you need conversations to happen secretly um, to be able to show that and still just how on display and in public um, uh, court life could be. Uh, You were mentioning the royal scandals at the time, Mm -hmm. often in order uh, to to make a more exciting film, you see the most salacious interpretations of various uh, royal scandals uh, being portrayed. Um, Marie Antoinette, uh, certainly there's evidence in her letters that she was in love with the Swedish diplomat, Axel Fersen. Whether that relationship was ever consummated, remains a matter of enormous debate. A lot of his papers are missing. There is one author who's gone so far as to say, yes, it was consummated, and perhaps he he fathered one or two of her children. And then others say, no, they that they, they, they loved each other, but they would never have been alone. And others say, well, if they were alone, it would have been after the revolution when she didn't have all of this attention on her. So when historians sit down to debate these kinds of of royal scandals, there's an enormous range of opinion as to were two people lovers or simply formed a close political alliance. And often the film versions want a more straightforward narrative. And and also in terms of what everyone knows and what knowledge is being spread um, in, say, the Tudors TV series, Henry VIII is shown quite publicly as um, taking many mistresses. And in fact, when it comes to Henry VIII's mistresses. We know about Bessie Blount because she was the mother of his illegitimate son, Henry Fitzroy. And we know about Mary Boleyn because she was the sister of Anne Boleyn. But Henry VIII was actually surprisingly discreet about some of his other relationships because he didn't want Catherine of Aragon to be upset while she was expecting as as they had um, lost many children. So the kind of Tudor's portrayal of Henry VIII quite publicly behaving this way as though he's a French monarch with an official mistress (laughs) is is not is not quite accurate. Yes, Henry VIII had had many mistresses, but it wasn't quite as public and as blatant as his. It's good for the script, isn't it? It's yeah, good for the script. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so often we see changes being made just so the audience can see what's happening. Conflict can be generated with uh, yeah. with people finding out what uh, what's going on, and so we see historical events inspiring a certain narrative. And of course, another theme that dramatists are fast fascinated by is what sorts of conversations um, are not recorded in the historical record, what's between the lines of various uh, letters or diary entries. And so uh, the the Crown on Netflix is particularly uh, interested in this. What happens during Queen Elizabeth II's audiences with her various prime ministers. And the play, the audience um, was about that theme, the crown on Netflix, as we, as there are no minutes taken of these particular meetings. And it's something that, that the the screenwriters of the, uh, of Peter Morgan, the screenwriters of the crown have found particularly interesting is exploring what might be discussed Uh, during those meetings. So a lot of authors of historical fiction and dramatists and screenwriters are very interested in, in what we, what we don't know, what, what we can read between the lines. So 
you mentioned books again. I know there's a book about George the Third called mm-hmm. A Royal Affair. Is that yes, that? Stella Tilliard. Yeah, so her book, and and um, I think it was it was subtitled George the Third and His Scandalous Siblings, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. So now that was t- was that turned into a film? Yes, it was turned into a Danish film, A Royal Affair, that focused on George III's sister, Caroline Matilda, and her marriage to the King of Denmark, who suffered from mental illness, and how she came to be having an affair with his doctor. And the doctor was virtually running Denmark at one point, that he was a close confidant that of the king and was having an affair with the queen. And the film gets into the two sides of this, of Dr. Struensee becoming this very close friend and confidant of this very unstable monarch, but also having this relationship with the queen. And of course, having that level of power as a royal favorite attracted many enemies, you know, including the, the, the king's mother. So, so he was ultimately uh, overthrown and executed and and the the queen was sent into exile, and she uh, dies in her twenties, and so it was quite tragic. And there remains a debate to the present day um, regarding the parentage of her daughter. Her son is acknowledged to be the the king's son, but her daughter was nicknamed even in her own lifetime, La, La, La Petite Struensee, that it was assumed that this was um, the the doctor's daughter. Um, and and of course, you know, she was she was acknowledged by the, the the king of Denmark and was and and made a royal marriage and was treated as a princess. But it was pretty pretty common knowledge around the time that she had been conceived that it was likely uh, Struensee was uh, was the father, and there was a resemblance there as well. Uh, Stella Tilliard's book, however, isn't just about Caroline Matilda; it's about all of George III's siblings and their determination to make marriages or relationships of inclination rather than of state. George III was very dutiful and made a a, a, a dynastic marriage to Queen Charlotte, but his siblings made, uh, in Caroline Matilda's case, got into a relationship with a commoner, but his brothers had secret marriages to commoners, and this is the context for the Royal Marriages Act, where uh, George III decreed that male line descendants of George II, so the descendants, with the exception of the descendants of princesses who'd married foreign princes, these descendants needed the monarch's permission to get married. And that was the case all the way until 2015. The succession reform that introduced gender 2015 introduced gender neutral succession now dictates only the first six people in line need the queen's permission. But it used to be people who were very remotely in line to the throne needed to ask the queen's permission to marry. Many documentaries from Queen Elizabeth II's reign portray this of some distant descendant of Queen Victoria um, writing to Queen Elizabeth II. They're getting married and they need uh, their permission. And Robert Hardman's book, Our Queen, says many of these descendants would frame their permission. It was a nice souvenir that you had distant royal descent. But there were others who found this was very outdated, that you're 400th in line to the throne, but you still have to ask the queen. Yeah, for permission to get married. And of course, it attracted attention when it was someone uh, uh, more extended on continental Europe as well. So when um, Ernest Ernst of Hanover was marrying Princess Caroline of Monaco, and he was asking the queen for permission to marry as he was one of these 
these male line descendants that that attracted headlines. So Stella Tilliard's book, A Royal Affair, indicates there's more going on than simply Caroline Matilda and the doctor at the Danish court, that this is a time period where there's a real clash between what the wider population is coming to expect. There is more romanticization of marriage and an expectation that it be companionate to some degree. Of course, you married within your class, but what we're starting to see, as you notice in Jane Austen novels at this time, a discussion of what a loving marriage looks like. And if you were of the aristocracy, yes, there was a small pool that you could draw upon, but you'd likely have some choice in terms of who you married. And royalty didn't necessarily have that choice. So we're seeing George III's um, siblings really rebelling against the expectations that they're facing. And George III making very clear that, no, for royalty, it's different. They are expected to marry other royalty. They're expected to make suitable marriages. He had done so. He expects the same of his siblings. So there's the really interesting philosophical moment. And and Marie Antoinette is part of this generation as well. And in her letters, she expresses some frustration. Yes, she and Louis XVI get along very well on a day-to-day level, but their interests aren't the same. He likes hunting and blacksmithing. She likes to attend parties late into the evening, enjoys fashions. And they're accepting of each other's interests, but this isn't the connection that she's expecting. And her mother, Empress Maria Theresa, is very angry at Marie Antoinette for basically writing to an Austrian diplomat about her feelings and, and just saying that this is how a royal mistress behaves, talking in that way. So someone like Madame de Pompadour or Madame du Barry, that this is not how a, how a queen of France expresses herself. So we see this generational divide of Marie Antoinette getting into the late 18th century and wants a loving connection of some kind and her mother, uh, uh, Maria Theresa, emphasizing that your job is to have an heir to the throne and to make this a successful uh, dynastic marriage. So there's this real wider philosophical um, uh, generational divide when we reach the late 18th century in the royal houses of Europe. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. And, and, and it's interesting you say it's a job. It's still being perceived. You are, this is your duty. Mm-hmm. It's all about maintaining integrity, doing the job that you are expected to do. You are in a, in a you know, your royal position grants you privilege. So, and we, we've clearly seen that court life can be a drama in its own right. All these expectations, the rules, the considerations. When we think about what we've seen um, on the screen, though, mm-hmm. there must be elements of life during that time 
that were just as interesting that we mm. haven't seen. Yes. Um, something like, I don't know, the, the, the political developments of the time. OK, it's not such a se- sexy subject, but what could we have seen? What could the dramatists have looked at? Well, often we get elements of Enlightenment thought in the 18th century. We'll see Catherine the Great uh, reading while her husband, Peter III's ignoring her. Or we'll see in A Royal Affair that Dr. Struensee is trying to introduce all sorts of reforms and abolish um, capital punishment and to use that position as a royal favorite to introduce some enlightened reforms um, in, into Denmark. So we do get these flashes of what's happening, but often the focus is on the individual experiencing life at a royal court rather than the wider political conditions that have created this court culture and the changes that are taking place. In British history, we see certain time periods have received a lot of attention in historical fiction, the Tudors and Mary Queen of Scots. And now we see the reign of Queen Victoria, particularly the young Victoria has attracted a lot of attention and Queen Elizabeth II with the crown on Netflix. And there've been a number of novels as well, such as Alan Bennett's An Uncommon Reader and William Kuhn's Mrs. Queen Takes the Train. There have been a lot of historical novels imagining what life is like behind the scenes of Buckingham Palace. But the Stuarts and the Hanovers have not received the same kind of attention in historical fiction. So we lose some of the political developments, the development of a constitutional monarchy, that moment in the glorious revolution where James II is driven out, William III, and... Mary II come to the throne and they have to accept a bill of rights with limits on their power that they will accept the advice of parliament. But that's not exactly what they wanted, was it? Well, it it was the situation that they were in in order to be accepted as the new monarchs. They receive a civil list payment, which is now the sovereign grant, um, in order to pay their expenses. But Parliament was not interested in negotiating with each new monarch at this point. They wanted to ensure there was a system going forward. And with the Hanover's party politics and and royal family conflict were very closely united that we often see politicians from the government in power gathered around the king and the members of the official opposition gathering around the heir to the throne as Hanoverian fathers and sons were so often in conflict that we see party politics starting to break down that if you're in opposition in government often you would then cluster around the heir to the throne so some of these connections about how individual family drama also play out on a wider political sphere that attracts a lot of attention of the Hanoverian monarchs the one who perhaps has the biggest presence in popular culture is King George III because of the American Revolution so we even see him singing a few songs in the musical Hamilton Um, but also due to his mental illness and the significance of that so the film The Madness of King George so those events later in his life the American Revolution the breakdown of his mental health and we lose younger King George III. We're getting a lot about the young Victoria right now, but the younger years of her grandfather, George III, don't get as much attention. But in his youth, he was satirized as Farmer George. He loved being out at a country estate. And King George III and Queen Charlotte were key to the founding of the Kew Botanical Gardens outside London. And George III's book collection forms the nucleus of the, the British Library. So George III had all these intellectual interests early in his life. And um, the current Prince of 
Wales, Prince Charles, has argued that George III has been really misunderstood, that there was a lot more to him uh, than uh, then we think that he was actually a very cultured and intelligent person, but we think of him as loses the American colonies and then loses uh, his mental health. So I think the early years of George III's reign, that that would be an interesting period for historical fiction to explore. And also in the Stuart period, there's a lot of interest in Queens, what it's like to be a young woman navigating court politics. So we see films about Elizabeth I and Mary Queen of Scots. We see films about uh, and series about Queen Victoria and Queen Elizabeth II. But the Stuart queens, Mary II and Queen Anne, have received until very recently less attention there's Olivia Coleman who portrays Queen Anne in the, the in the favorite, uh, but that slightly earlier period with the overthrow of their father, it would be very interesting to see almost a King Lear inspired film that would look at what decisions the daughters make during that very key moment in history. So we get Queen Anne's later years uh, dramatized in the favorite, but her earlier uh, her earlier years in the Glorious Revolution haven't received so much attention in popular culture. That it's really interesting when we when we think about the the, the canon that we we can actually sit and watch and watch over and over again. Mm-hmm. We can examine what we perceive to be their lives. We can put them under the microscope. We mm-hmm. are seeing, in some ways, yes, obviously it's a, a dramatized, tainted view, but we are getting a snapshot. We are getting an insight as to some of their lives, some of the ways they've lived. So, with that in mind, I think we also quite rightly revere monarchy in in all its glory um i think there's more discussion now about the role for monarchy in a modern society but if we think about some of the older films perhaps i want to say older films you mentioned the film from the 1930s was it yeah norma Shearer and tyrone power and marie antoinette yeah so when we think about those films early on-screen representations and compare them to modern cinematography where where there is more diligence and people we really do want to get the costume right and they do want to get the hair right mm-hmm. where have you seen big mistakes i find one of the giveaways not always but often if you didn't have a year next to a film and wanted to know when it was made often the hairstyles are a little bit of a giveaway in terms of when the film was made, particularly some of the extras in the background. You see the hairstyles of when the film was made rather than the era that's that's um, trying to be portrayed. And we see that in, say, the 1971 film, Nicholas and Alexandra, about the last Tsar of Russia, that Nicholas and Alexandra's daughters, Olga, Tatiana, Maria, and Anastasia, have long hair, but it's long hair in a rather 1970s way with the, the part and then straight down when they would have swept it back uh, uh, with uh, with a ribbon that they would have worn their hair a little differently. We see that in Dr. Zhivago as well. Some of these, um, some of the hairstyles uh, r- reveal when the, the film was made. So sometimes you get very sumptuous costumes, but recreating some of the other aspects of the style of the time, the makeup, the hair, as what was considered attractive in previous 
hair is is not always what's considered attractive in our own era. So ensuring that the audience um, reacts well to the aesthetics of the film that that can be that, that can be a very uh, significant theme. Of course, when a series gets the aesthetics right, that can attract controversy as well. One of the controversies that's arisen about The Crown on Netflix is they've been very good about capturing the flavor of the times, having um, the, the the typewriters and the telegraph op- operators in the 1950s and capturing elements of 1980s culture, whether it's you know, Princess Diana rollerblading in season four. So they've have a lot of authenticity about what you're seeing in terms of the design. And that has led to controversy when there are completely fictionalized scenes or fictionalized dialogue as there has been concern that the series looks like a documentary. So people who haven't read widely about the monarchy might take what they're seeing as face at face value. When of course, any work of historical fiction is um, blending fact and fiction using fact as a jumping off point and a better comparison than comparing historical fiction to real life events is to instead look at other works of historical fiction, look at Shakespeare's history plays, for example, um, which are referenced in The Crown on Netflix, Michael Fagan, when he breaks into Buckingham Palace and, and speaks to the Queen, he's compared in the episode to King Lear's Fool. So there are these references back to those kinds of Shakespearean history plays that portrayed different monarchs in very particular ways in order to make a certain uh, dramatic or philosophical point. But of course, historical fiction, even in Shakespeare's time, created a certain received wisdom. So if we think of what, what comes to mind, we picture Richard III, that the excavation of Richard III's remains and the work of the Richard III Society have rehabilitated him to some degree. But that image of Laurence Olivier portraying Shakespeare's Richard III as a hunchbacked villain, it just remains in the popular consciousness. So there's controversy about if you get all the design aspects correct and you have a compelling performance, this can make fictions seem like fact, even for more critical audiences, it can create a sort of received wisdom where you don't quite know where you heard something with this historical figure, but you're convinced, oh, that's right. I definitely heard that about this figure before. So the way in which popular culture can seep into our ideas of what happened and what didn't and the art can take on a life of its own. It it permeates, doesn't it? I mean, I remember Anthony Scher. Um, portraying Richard and I've got an idea Kevin Spacey did as well and they they both did it on crutches or with with iron calipers so as to inhibit that and, and that that idea has permeated his character mm-hmm. almost to the point where it doesn't matter what we find now it doesn't matter what the truth is today that's how we perceive those characters real people have been portrayed in such a demonstrative way on screen that mm-hmm. that's what they've become and, and when Richard III's remains were discovered, there's evidence of scoliosis. He would have had one shoulder slightly higher than the other. And it's clear that, I, I believe the economist obituary for Richard III said, you know, perhaps an extra cushion on his throne for comfort. But he was still someone who was fighting medieval battles with a sword on horseback. So he could not have been as as severely affected by his condition as the Shakespearean portrayal. But clearly the fact that there was some slight issue enabled dramatists um, to expand that. As for uh, writers in the 16th century, 
century, um, uh, often outward appearance symbolized inward character uh, uh, for the dramatists and the writers of the age. So playing up the the, the stories about uh, about Richard III's hunchback enabled him to be enabled him to be portrayed as a villain. And of course, we have to think of the audience for the kinds of portrayals of Richard III from the 16th century. We're talking about uh, writers who are writing for a Tudor patrons. Henry VII had been the victor at the Battle of Bosworth Field, and Richard III had lost and had died on the battlefield. So it's one of those cases of history being written by the winners and becomes more nuanced. And of course, there's a danger of going in the other direction where we see historical novels where Richard III's depicted as a kind of romantic hero, when the truth is probably somewhere in the middle, that he was neither this exceptionally villainous figure nor this exceptionally virtuous one, but was a person of his time and the Wars of the Roses were a very ruthless time. So it's better to compare him to his relatives and how he compared to them rather than to the either these villainized or idealized depictions. It's it's fascinating. And I don't think we've I, we, we've hardly scraped the surface. I get. Oh, yes. We've jumped around and looked at all yeah. sorts of historical figures, but there's so many more. And there's also historical figures that just haven't uh, made it onto the screen or just have bit parts in other people's stories. I mentioned uh, Vanessa Redgrave playing mm-hmm. Empress Elizabeth, um, the aunt of Catherine the Great's husband, Peter III, and the one who arranged that marriage. And Empress Elizabeth was the daughter of Peter the Great and grew up in his court and staged her own military coup in order to come to the throne. So her life in its entirety would make a very good film, but we only tend to see her in her last years when she's arranging that marriage between her nephew and heir and um, the German princess um, Sophia of Annalsberst, who goes on to be um, Catherine the Great. There's all sorts of of people who perhaps have walk-on roles in films about famous historical figures that could easily carry an entire film themselves in terms of the amount of drama that happened in their lives. Who would you pick if you were given a massive budget, Paramount, you know, any one of the big big companies, and the cast of your choice, obviously? Who would you pick? <laughs> um, we've talked about Russian history. Uh, Peter the Great's second wife, um, Catherine the uh, First, she's born Marta Stavronska. She went from being the daughter of runaway serfs. She becomes Peter the Great's mistress and then his wife. She's crowned empress and then she succeeds him when he dies in 1725 and becomes the first female empress of Russia. And what I find interesting is in this role, she goes and finds her siblings from before. She brings some building projects um, to an end in St. Petersburg. She was concerned about how the peasant laborers were being treated. So she never seems to have lost consciousness of where she'd been, despite this incredibly uh, meteoric rise to power. And I think her life going from rags to riches and always remaining conscious of where she'd been would be very interesting. In a British context, I think it would be interesting to do more with the Glorious Revolution and what it was like to be the future Mary II and Queen Anne in a situation uh, where their father's being overthrown and and they decide to side with the revolution and and, and this generational divide, the, the Catholic James II, his Protestant daughters and the conflict between them. So I think that there's all sorts of historical times periods and historical figures that deserve um, more attention on screen than they've received. Untapped treasure troves. Carolyn, thank you so much for joining us today. Honestly, I really do feel like we've hardly touched 
on this at all. And now I know you have um, you have more than one book. You've got yes. a book about Magna Carta. Now, what's what's the book that you're working on at the moment? Uh, right now, I'm co-editing a series on on English queens, power, influence, and dynasty. It's a four volume series that I'm co-editing that will that will have a chapter on each of the. Uh, of the royal consorts all the way from William the Conqueror's queen, Matilda of Flanders and beginning of volume one, all the way through to Prince Philip today. So, uh, so it's going to be a very interesting series. Uh, my other books are Magna Carta and its gifts to Canada, which accompanied the 800th anniversary of the, uh, the, the sealing of, of Magna Carta and the Canadian exhibition. One of the uh, surviving versions of Magna Carta from 1300 went on tour in Canada. I, I've also written, this is based on my PhD dissertation, uh, Queenship and Revolution in Early Modern Europe, Henrietta Maria and Marie Antoinette, which compares uh, the, the lives of Henrietta Maria leading up to the English Civil Wars, she's Charles I Queen, and Marie Antoinette leading up to the French Revolution, and how they were perceived as wives, mothers, heads of royal household, and how discrediting the Queen helped discredit the monarchy in both cases. And then my 2017 book, Raising Royalty, A Thousand Years of Royal Parenting, looks at 20 sets of royal parents from medieval times to modern times. So from Edgar and Elfrida and Anglo-Saxon times through to William and Catherine, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge today. So there's lots of different interesting facets of royal life to explore. And I do hope you're going to come back, aren't you? You're going to come back and talk to us again. That sounds great. We'd love to have you. Oh, thank thank you. you. Thank you so much for joining us today. And we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you. All right. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Alina and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join... There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them, and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history, or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 